Welcome to the Dairy Farmer's Digest, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we will talk to industry leaders who share their insights and experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Dairy Farmer's Digest. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer. Super excited today to have Dr. Gerard Kramer from the University of Minnesota on. Now, Gerard's a veterinarian and has a degree uh, in veterinary science as well. Is there any other credentials behind your name these days, Gerard? Or No, nothing nothing added. So that's enough. My <laughs> okay. wife says she, I should stop going to school. So <laughs> You go to school every day, though, don't you? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> no, that's good. So I know we were just talking a little bit of uh, what's going on in Minnesota this morning. You said it's relatively cold and lots of snow. Yeah, it's relatively cold and we got a lot of snow this month. So it's... Uh... It's cold. Nothing like in Ontario, I guess, where you've had more rain and stuff, but we've had tons of snow. Yeah, we, uh, I always kind of joke, like, whatever happens in Minnesota, Wisconsin, we kind of get two days later, but it's been, it's been a horrible winter. I, like, I feel it's just been so dark and gray and, and kind of gross rainy. Now we have some snow this morning. It's about, I don't know, minus three or 27 degrees Fahrenheit for American listeners, but uh, it would be nice to get some cold uh a nice little cold snap it seems to get sunny when it gets cold so yes it's it's gonna be sunny here today and i think for the next week it's gonna be minus 20 ish yeah well you guys can keep that like we don't need that but (laughs) the lakes uh... might make it warmer so (laughs) (laughs) yeah we got a little we got those blue blankets on either side of us so yep but uh so it's been a while since we had you on the podcast i know you were one of the original kind of uh guests that we had on back when we started in 2020. So what's changed, I guess, in uh, the hoof health academia world uh, since you were on last time? Oh, yeah. So it's it's been a whirlwind. So I think everybody's COVID is flying by. Um, probably the latest thing I'm working on is something related to detection of lameness. So we're using, working with companies such as Catalyze, but there's other companies too that are um, basically using cameras to watch cows walk and then trying to assign them a locomotion score and then using that to create, tell the farmer, do I cheat this cow or not cheat this cow? Or can we use her to put her on trim list and those type of things? That's interesting. So are they using, like they're using the camera technology just to identify cows that don't have like good gait or like, yes. you know, hunched up backs or just general locomotion? General locomotion. So basically what they do is this uh, company I'm working with right now is called Catalyze and they have a security cam out there. Basically mount above the return lane. They need about 12 feet. Um, that the cow walks underneath of it. Um, and then basically it takes points on the cow's body and basically on how much they move or deviate from what they consider normal. Um, then it assigns the cow a score from zero to a hundred. And then some of the data we have, it shows that it's, it's not a perfect correlation. Like if it says cows 50, she's not guaranteed to be lame, but we can identify cows that get lesions. Like if we look back and say, okay, well, this cow is going up. There are cows that have, like for example, with uh, hemorrhages or soul ulcers or foot rot, we can identify those cows with that technology. So the accuracy, like, is that just going to get better with time? Like, is there's more data in the, like more yes. cows are looked at? So yeah, more cows are looked at and we like more people use it because right now it's just like, they've done the like sensitivity and specificity saying, okay, this is relatively decent, but then to turn it into a tool and make useful decisions on the farm, that's kind of the next step. So as we figure that out, I think it'll become 
more prevalent and a good tool for people to think about putting in barns. Yeah, there of uh it just seems like we're at the early stages in some of the stuff. Like you're seeing more and more cameras and things in barns now. And I think more mostly for security and employee safety, but yeah, I think we're gonna see a lot more of these technologies adapted. Yeah. Now, is it kind of along the lines of like the body condition cameras that were kind of around a little bit or yeah, same idea. So this, um, I think I know of at least three different companies that are working on it, but they all use kind of the, some sort of camera. One of them, and both of them are, most of them are working on body condition scoring and locomotion. But basically they take the pictures and then they use um, artificial intelligence and machine learning to kind of feed the data set. So that kind of remembers what the cow was last time and kind of uses that history and other data to kind of say, okay, this is what the score is. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's super interesting. Like it's, uh, it never ceases to amaze me how people are adapting different technologies on the farm to do diagnostics now. Like, like the amount of information that you can get from a, a robot or a parlor is just, I think just the beginning, like, like you said, with cameras or there's going to be other things that we don't even know about exactly yet, that are, are going to be there. And then the next thing is taking all that information and doing something together. Right. Because that's where it's, like integrating that, right? Because if a cow has the score, we can integrate some of the milk production data and other data, then you can say, okay, we get a lot more confident that there's actually a problem with this cow. That's that's the future, I think. How long until like this is herd level? Like we talk in like three, five years or? Uh, so it's being marketed now, um, but I would say it still needs a little bit of um, fine tuning to kind of come up with like an actionable item. But there are some early adopters that are working. Like I have two dairies that I work with or three dairies that I work with that have it on, but we're still like, how do we use this tool? So on one, on one dairy, we just use it to kind of put cows on the trim list. So we just trim everybody and dry off. And then the rest of the cows basically get put on the trim list based on if they're above 50 or if they've had a history above being above 50. And we put them on the trim list as an example. But that's more to try and figure out, is it actually working? But in this scenario, it seems to be helping the dairy. Like we've reduced the number of trimmings that we're doing, yet still improving lameness. This technology is just going to get better as time goes on, right? Yes. So. If you ask me in a year from now, I think, or two years from now, we'll, there'll be a lot more farms and wood. Like, I can feel more confident saying, this is what you need to do with this technology. Now I'm like, well, we need to learn more about the technology before I'm ready to say, this is how much you're willing to pay for, right? Because the company's charging something for it. And I'm not convinced I can say with 100% certainty, you're going to get a return on that charge at this point. And that's where I'd like to get to where we can say yes. This is the price you're paying, and this is how much money you're going to make when you make that investment. Well, the interesting thing about some of these technologies is they don't have any bias. Like like yeah. you or I go into a herd and like how I lameness score versus how you're going to lameness score is going to be very different. But that's like, this is our parameters that we have set. Yes. And if it deviates from that, then we'll have an alarm or, you know, that yeah. cow, that cow's sound. So she just, just keeps looking. Exactly. It's the same. We're walking day. away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so from new technology, I kind of want to segue into old technology and kind of tried true stuff with, uh, yeah. foot bathing. I know in the last episode we talked about stuff, but I, I kind of want to dive a little bit deeper into the foot bath. And one of the things that, um, people are doing is acidified copper sulfate or acidifying copper sulfate. Can we maybe just walk through that? Just kind of a helicopter view of, of kind of the science behind that and, and maybe some different products that we can use. I know um, just trying to source some ingredients like uh, sodium bisulfate and things like that for producers. 
let's jump off there. Okay. So um, typically when we talk about acidifying, we're using copper sulfate. Um, the reason for that is if we take, let's say if you have a 50 gallon foot bath or a two liter foot bath and you put a half a bag of copper sulfate in it, about half of that actually goes in solution. The other half kind of lays on the bottom and doesn't, uh, isn't necessarily active. And that's because the pH isn't appropriate enough. So if you, the way the science behind it is typically, if you put it in there um, with water, you're going to end up with a pH about 5.5. If we decrease that pH by at least one pH point, so the 4.5, you're going to get 100% of that copper into solution. So that's the reason for acidifying, because then what you're putting in, let's say you're putting in 5%, you're really only getting 2.5%. But if you acidify it, then you're going to get all of the copper sulfate in action. So then you're going to get the 5%. But you probably don't need the 5%, so you can save money and go to the 2.5%, because that's what we've been using in the past already without knowing it. Um, so that's the kind of the science behind it. You need to reduce the pH at least one score um, to get the effect, to get all of the copper in the solution. So basically you're trying to reduce the amount of copper that's in the foot bath and then in turn amount of copper that ends up on your field because that's ultimately kind of what we're trying to do. Um, and then there's different products out there that can do that. But the key is basically whatever acid you put in there, whether it's sodium bisulfate or there's many of the companies sell a commercial acidifier um, that are priced magically to end up with the same price if you were putting a full bag in. So <laughs> buyer be aware, but that's typically what the pricing is. Um, but the key is that you don't go too low with your pH, because if you go too low, we can actually create more chronic chronicity in the lesion. So you want to stay around a pH, not start your foot bath around a pH of three. Um, some people have gone a little lower. It's somewhat product dependent, but it's safe to say three, maybe two, but probably three safer. And then you want to monitor it and you want to change your foot bath or add more acid um, when it gets up to the 4.5, because that's when you get above it. So more of the copper then gets out of solution and then you need to, you don't have the same effect. So basically you reduce your copper sulfate to two and a half percent. So if you're putting in, let's say half a bag, you're going to put in a quarter of a bag plus an acid, monitor your pH, and then let the start. And then I've kind of monitored throughout the time to indicate my foot bath lasts, let's say 300 cows, and then I can change it because then it's at 4.5. So then I should probably change it. That's an area. So, so you're looking at something, say, so just for easy math. So if we're doing a hundred liter foot bath, I'm not saying that's the right number, but I'm just right. saying like for easy yeah. math, um, you're looking at, you'd add say two and a half kilos of copper sulfate, but then you want to make sure that pH is, you know, between three or four on a on-farm level. Yes. Start out at three. Um, Cause the closer you get to four, the shorter the foot bath's going to last. Right. Yeah, because so the start, manure just is basic, right? Yeah. So you're just adding as soon as the cow starts walking through, your pH is going to go up. So you want to start as low as possible. Um, so I start around three um, and then go up from there. Okay. Is there a magic number for amount of cows to a foot bath or is it all just dependent? Like you say, test the pH and if it starts getting high, then we've got to either redo the foot bath or add more product to make sure that pH stays down. Exactly. There is no, to me, there's no magic. There is no magic in life. So it's, <laughs> it all depends, <laughs> right? It's easy to say you need to change it every 200 cows, but that's, I would argue is a farce, right? That works for some dairies. Other dairies can get like, we, some dairies, we run a thousand cows to the foot bath. So it all depends on the flow, the foot bath design. Um, if the cows are used to it, if they're being pushed through all those things kind of, kind of matter. So just like everything else in life, there's a lot of nuance involved. Yes, <laughs> there is no black and white. <laughs> there's a safe answer, 200 cows, sure. But yeah, you know. but you might be throwing, 
you never know. You like, exactly. you're either going to be ineffective or you might be throwing expensive product out. Cause I know like some of these copper sulfates and things like that, they're not, they're not cheap to run a foot bath. Like there's a cost associated with it. So exactly. And as margins get tighter, I know they're, they're pretty good uh, right now, but I know like there's yep. a lot of costs that have gone up, milk yep. prices up, the costs have gone up. So I think anything that we yes. can do to be a little bit tighter is, is good. Yes. Um, what about order a foot bath? Like, like if you're going to do say your traditional like formaldehyde copper sulfate type foot bath like do you do copper first or formaldehyde first or is there an order which you run or do you go back and forth or in Gerard's uh perfect world what what do you see out there um so in my perfect world I would just stick to one product um I don't necessarily think it's important to switch one or the other products um so because of my Dutch origin, I like the cheapest product possible. So that's <laughs> probably formalin. Um, and I would argue we can use the product safely. So to me, I pick a product and then I just use that product as many times as I need to. So I'm a pretty data oriented person. So I start out like if I d don't know or don't trust the data, I start out a farm at let's say five days a week with continuous use. So, so start Monday to Friday, they run copper sulfate or formalin. Um, and then if we do that for three months and say, okay, are we happy with the level we have? If we are, and we want to try to save some money or if we're risk averse, then we change, we stay there. But if we're willing to say, okay, we're happy with this level, let's go to four days a week. And then we do that for three months. And if the levels stay the same, so if the trimming records show that we're not getting any new cases and the chronic cases aren't coming back on us, then we can go to four days. And then we just keep going that till we get to kind of the sweet spot where we're like, okay, if we know we go less than, for example, let's say we go to three days a week, things stay the same, but when we go to two days a week, we start to see more cases and we're not happy with that number of cases. Then we stay at three days a week and we just go back. Mm -hmm. So to me, the order doesn't matter because we're just trying to basically disinfect the foot so we can use any disinfectant to do that. There's no other benefits. Um, one of the myths I think that you hear is a copper sulfate hardens feet. Um, and that's a myth. There's no biological way that we can get copper sulfate like how walking through a copper sulfate foot bath for two or three seconds he's not going to absorb any copper in that hoof that's got it hotter in the foot and you'll hear lots of people say that but well i was always and and thanks for busting the smith but i was always under the uh impression and and i guess it's just not listening or listening to people like you and not listening to just people in the industry but <laughs> the the formaldehyde would essentially I guess it, it maybe would inflame the foot a little bit and then the copper would re do the opposite reaction and tighten that foot bath foot back up a little bit, make it a little bit harder. But obviously I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I would say yes. So for other reasons, we've been trying to dig into this a little bit. So there's one small paper that suggests that the copper hardens the foot in one particular location of the foot. But if we think about like how foot gets harder, Right, how the foot gets hard, the biggest factor is how wet it is. Right? The other factor is kind of the trace minerals that we feed. And the way the foot is basically built, it starts inside the foot. And basically what happens is let's say you have all these trace minerals and all these stuff floating around, some things like copper sulfate, zinc, um, probably more importantly, calcium amino acids and uh, sulfur containing amino acids and biotin, they are in the blood supply and then they go to the cells that grow the horn. And those cells are kind of right underneath the blood supply. And then those cells grow something called keratinocytes, so basically skin cells. 
Mm-hmm. Those skin cells grow, and in the horn, there's like different layers of them. So there's alive skin cells, and then eventually they become dead skin cells. And all those nutrients basically have a role to play to create this strong bonds. So those cells kind of stick together and are hard, strong cells. And eventually those cells die, and they kind of all the contents of that cell get squished out, and they create kind of the glue and basically the tight junctions to hold things together. But they also create kind of a fatty layer that keeps the outside world out. So that's kind of like we call it a lipophilic layer. So basically a fat membrane in the horn that keeps basically the moisture from going into um, the and damaging the tissues that are actually alive and growing. So that's why copper sulfate or any chemical would be very hard to get into the cells that actually make the copper, like the skin cells. They might tinge stuff blue, but that's because there's like we're dealing with dead tissue. Right. So mm-hmm. the same as you stick your finger in something, it's not like you're absorbing, you're just, it's absorbing some of it, but it's not getting to the cells that are actually making it. And that's what we need, we require to make it hard. Well, and the skin is your barrier to prevent things like that, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes so, a lot more sense than what I was saying. So, yes. <laughs> right. But and that's some of these things, some of these myths. Like if we start going back to basic principles and say, okay, how are these cells grown? And how does this happen? Then it's some of the things that we believe. And I like I used to, people used to say that all the time. Like, yeah, maybe I don't know. I don't think so, but sure. But there's if we start thinking about it logically and start digging into it, there's really not much evidence for it. The one thing that can happen is let's say let's say formalin or copper. If we get it, can make this the the some data to suggest that it actually makes the hoof brittle, like it makes it softer. Mm-hmm. Um, or like more likely to break because it's de- denaturing some of those tight junctions that are there. But that's only at the very bottom layer, so far away from where the cells are actually growing and everything else. So for a foot bath perspective, all you're trying to do is disinfect the foot. Don't worry about hardening the foot. Talk to your nutritionist and get the right chem- like right nutrients in your ration to get hard feet and make sure your feet are dry that's probably a way bigger impact than trying to run some copper just to harden the foot. That's a myth. I think that we just need to get away from. I want to touch on that nutrition thing, but I had one more question about like the foot bath and kind of like some of your DDs and things like that. Is there a time of year that is more susceptible to having issues like DD? Like, do you see it more in the winter, fall months or the summer? Like, like I know a lot of this things, are dri- driven by the amount of moisture in the barn. And like you said, with uh, um, how wet that hoof gets, like, is there a difference with time of year or is it just like, if it's there, it's there, or does heat stress or things like that make a cow more susceptible to something like DD? Um, so yes, it does. And it totally depends on the dairy, right? So um, I was look- looking at some data from a big system in November and we were starting to see more DD in the spring, um, which kind of didn't necessarily make sense but then when we thought about it because of the cold winter that we have here in minnesota sometimes you don't run the foot bath as frequently in the winter time right so then we're kind of allowing things to kind of get out of control and then we kind of see a spike later on so that's one example where because it's cold we don't run the foot bath as much things are frozen so then we get more with it another scenario would be if you have um, soakers in your barn now your floor is a little wetter in the summertime Mm -hmm. right so you might get more dd late summer early fall because you're just cows are standing in more wet, there's more exposure to everything else. So there's definitely a pattern, but it totally depends on the dairy. Um, and I would argue if we know what that pattern is on your farm, we can say, okay, we know we get more DD 
in the spring, for example. So we're actually going to foot bath more in the winter when we can, right? Mm -hmm. So instead of if we're doing three days a week normally and we, we're safe with that level, in the winter we might go to four days a week because we know there might be a week where we can't do anything. So we want to stay ahead of it as much as we can. So when we have to take that break because it's a skating rink, um, we're not going to create as much of a problem whereas if we had a lower level of foot data. And with your foot baths, are we going to run a treatment rate versus a prevention rate? Like, is there a, such a thing or do you just want to run a consistent rate all the time? I want to run a consistent rate all the time and we can probably run lower than what we're used to. Um, so with formalin, I run, I run as low as 1%, but between one and 3% is probably a safe level. Um, the more, so we can actually, as we've learned more, we can actually create more chronicity. So more chronic lesions, um, with, let's say we have a cow that has got a DD. She's for some reason, or a heifer that came in with DD into her herd. If we run too strong of a foot bath, we can actually create more kind of skin proliferation. And that just creates more of a reservoir. So if we kind of moderate how much foot bath chemical we use, so let's say two and a half percent copper, um, and one to 3% formalin we actually reduce the number of chronics that we have and we can have a more steady state of disease instead of having these nasty, some of these nasty lesions and then some healthy lesions. So to me, it's all about prevention because treatment to me, the fastest way to make the cow feel better is to run her through a shoot and put topical treatment on her in that case, because we're dealing with a much mm -hmm. higher concentration. Um, but as far as treatment rates, not saying we can't, use a foot bath to, like if you have a problem running a foot bath is the fastest and easiest way to get things under control but i still run the same level as i would for prevention well i always talk about the same kind of mantras that prevention is way cheaper than treatment so let's do as much prevention as we can and try and mitigate uh treatments yes. just because it does take so much time and energy like if you got to separate cows out and run them Yep. and do a hoof trim shoot like there's probably more yep. areas where you're going to stress that cow out and and cause more harm than good yes well you're going to cause you're going to help her out a lot but i think that's uh it's like you're ripping the band-aid off before like you're going to cause a, a bit of harm and stress to that cow before she gets better yeah completely agree to me digital like warts or digital dermatitis is the easiest of the foot lesions to control we know exactly what we need to do and basically, your foot bath to the dial. If you're not happy with it, crank it up. That dial. Crank it up. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> crank it up with frequency. Don't crank it up with concentration, but crank yeah. it up with frequency. And no. like we have dairies that were less than 1%. If they run it religiously, we can get really low levels. I think they call that more better. Yes. You do it more, it's better, you know? Yes. But, yeah. Um, so to go back to the nutrition thing, like, what can producers or nutritionists do to kind of help with that? I know we're, we've talked about trace minerals, whether it be copper, zinc, cobalt, B vitamins, biotin, that kind of stuff. Like yeah. what's the best bang for the buck? What's the best bang? That's a great. <laughs> yeah. Cause they all have a cost associated, right? So. Yes. To me, I think we can't expect them to be silver bullets, right? To me, they're kind of like the icing on the top and what's the best mm -hmm. bang for the buck. I'm struggling because there's no like there's no good answer. If I was just kind of generalizing, I would probably biotin seems to be if we feed biotin. So let's go take one step back. All these products takes time to have an effect. So from yep. the data we know, biotin takes about six months. So if you're not gonna feed it in your dry period, you're losing some impact, right? Because you can't just start and stop it because that horn is being grown every single day. 
So if you don't feed it for two months, are we really gonna get the benefit? What probably is the risk period in the transition period. So the and same thing goes for those trace minerals. So we need to consider when we feed them. And then the bang for the buck probably would be, um, so to me, biotin, which actually looks like some data even for a milk effect, separate from a hoof milk mm -hmm. effect. Um, that seems to be somewhat consistent. And then for the trace minerals, probably copper and zinc would be, probably zinc would be the main one to focus on. Well, I, I wonder what the biotin, is it a chicken or an egg? Like what came first? Did you put the biotin in and then all of a sudden you got more milk? But is that because cows are more sound on their feet? Like they're having less hoof issues, right? Yeah, in so. theory they should. So, and like biotin, like those B vitamins have so many impacts on the cow too. And same with zinc, right? Zinc is, a, I think I was at a nutrition conference last week. There's 400 enzymes in the cow's body that depend on zinc. So we can feed it yeah. for the foot, right? But that might be, let's say 20, maybe 10 to 20 enzymes that depend on it. But there's another 380 that the cow depends on, right? So think of the yeah. holistic system. Like, yes, I like to feed, but it's still other things that are happening on the dairy too that we need to consider. To me, the key still is we need to feed it in the right time period, right? So if we're expecting things to do and we're only feeding it for a portion of the period, we're not going to get the same value as you would if you fed it for a longer time period. Yeah. Then what about like protected sort like the like B vitamins specifically, like protected B vitamins versus like a fat, like rumen protected versus, you know, a free biotin. Like do you double up the biotin or do you go with a protected source? Like, <laughs> because like, honestly, like we don't know how it's going to react in cow. Like some cows have great, response to just biotin other cows don't so like what's right. the limiting factor there like is it better off we just you know what we use a protected product that has biotin as one of its ingredients and then you know like is that the right solution i guess yeah and so honestly i don't know i don't think anybody really knows right that's where once again like i think we need some data to back some of those things up um but i don't I'd have to look and go back at the research if they use the protect ruben protected biotin in that stuff or not. But I don't know. I would like logically, like you said, it makes sense to make it rumen protected, but maybe you get an impact because now the rumen bugs take up some of those vitamin B and we get better yeah. energy and protein production by the rumen bugs. So I don't know is the right is the answer I have, but somebody smarter than me in nutrition might have a better answer. <laughs> Sounds like a, sounds like we need a B vitamin expert to come yes. on. <laughs> Fair enough. I want to bust some more myths because the first one with the foot bath was really good. Is there a link between nutrition and say hemorrhages or soul ulcers? I typically say no, not as much as we think. Let's put it that way. Um, okay. Historically. So I'm hedging my bets and I'll get to why I'm hedging my bet. Um, so historically, nutritionists got blamed or nutrition got blamed for like, basically we give the cow rumen acidosis. She gets what we typically call laminitis and then things blow up. And that's why she's lame. That was easy to say, okay, it's a nutritionist fault because she gave the cow acidosis, forgetting the fact that many different things cause acidosis. Um, there's actually more data. If you look at the whole picture that it's more likely a transition cow disease. So what's happening in the cow during transition typically result inflammation. It's actually more responsible for causing soul ulcers and hemorrhages than straight ruminal acidosis equals um, soul ulcers and soul hemorrhages. The reason I'm hesitating is so I've 
just completed and I think the paper's coming out this year where we've tried to give calcium ulcers, right? Because it's kind of the holy grail. If we actually look, that's the holy grail. It's something I consider a holy grail. It's a dream I have. Because if we know how to create it and we can reproduce it, it's much easier to do some of these studies that you're asking. We can say, well, does biotin affect the rate number of soul ulcers we get? Well, if I can create them mm -hmm. on, on command, basically, or on demand, then we can answer that question much easier than if I need to feed it to 2,000 cows and look at those 2,000 cows' feet every six months and everything else, right? So that's the reason I think we can answer some important questions a lot faster if we can actually induce soul ulcers in these cows. Um, I've tried to do that. And I've been, I would say, unsuccessful to create soul ulcers. We can create soul hemorrhages. Um, but what I did to do that, typically, so if we think about separate from nutrition, just the new thinking is either it's an inflammatory process and in combination with standing time. So cows are just standing too much. And interestingly, if you look in the literature, when cows get ruminosidosis, one of the responses is they stand more. Right? Exactly. And if we think about why something, some cows get ruminal acidosis or subclinical or subacute ruminal acidosis. One of them is problems with feed delivery, right? So if the cows are waiting, they're standing more waiting for the feed to come, empty bunk syndrome, then they may be slug feed. So it's a combination. Well, well, even simple things like heat stress or cow comfort, like is it a chicken or the egg? Is that cow standing more and gets acidosis or is that because she can't rumor or she's not ruminating as much yes. or is it something happening uh, management factor wise in the barn, you know, you're talking about, you know, sorting or slug feeding or, you know, it's just generally hot in the barn and that cow can't lay down. Like what's the, yeah, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Right. And that's what we're trying to figure out. Right. So yeah, we're pretty like if we have a herd with a soul ulcer or soul hammer, like typically a soul ulcer problem, if we fix the standing time issues, things get better. But when I did the study, like I at some point gave cows or took six or restricted them that they only had six hours where they actually could lay down if they had the opportunity, but that included milking and everything else. So I took 18 hours. I made them stand up twice in like nine hour bouts and I forced them to stand up for that time period. That's a lot of time standing for a cow. And if you do that too, it was kind of amazing because we have all seen cows lay down in alleys and everything else that. They don't actually start doing that until you're really, really, really restricted your lying time away from them. So if I see cows laying down in alleys now, I know we've probably taken like, these cows are forced to stand for 18 hours or more before they actually mm -hmm. start doing that. So, and when I did that, so the thing, what I did is I put a block on the foot and made them stand for extended time periods. And the other thing we did, we gave them an inflammatory event. So we try to restrict their feed intake and then we gave him, uh, basically, we injected E. coli into their veins to kind of give him a challenge that drop, that makes them use a lot of energy or glucose um, and kind of create this inflammatory event, even with all those things. So the worst thing I did is we, during the dry period, we restricted feed intake to 70%. So the next day they went dairy with slug feed during that same time. Um, and they also would get rumor or they would get um, basically ketosis or subclinical ketosis. Um, then what we did is we made them stand for at least three hours continuously. So it took six hours of lying time that we forced them to stand. Um, and then some of another subgroup of cows, we gave them this E. coli injection, basically, or this endotoxin injection to kind of create this inflammatory event all during the transition period. So within the first week we gave them these injections. So these cows were 
had ketosis or should have had ketosis, were forced to stand, had just gone through calving. So all the ligaments are loose. So the bone inside the hoof should be able to sink. And even doing that, I still couldn't give him sole ulcers. And they had a block <laughs> on that was horribly placed um, to force him to be lame. They all were lame. I can make them walk severely lame. Um, and when I look at them with an infrared camera, um, we could see signs of inflammation in the foot, but not enough to actually basically kill the cells that grow the horn to create the sole ulcer. So there's more going on, or the, mm -hmm. we don't know. Maybe my challenge wasn't severe enough or long enough to do it, but that's why I'm hedging my bet. I'm, I used to be like, it's not nutrition. And I'm like, well, it's not 100% standing time. It's not 100% inflammation. So there must be something else going on. Like death by a thousand cuts. Like it's just compacting factors that, exactly. that cause these issues, right? Yes, right. That's why I think if we take the standing time away, it's kind of like a scale, right? So the cows walk in this fine line. And if we put too much standing time on there, we create it. But if she's, mm -hmm. if we have those other things, not like if the scales up here, like it's unbalanced towards, like we're not getting it. We add the standing time, nothing might happen. So, so it's many other factors or many factors that go into it. It's not simple. Oh, too much standing time or too much starch or too much. This creates the soul ulcers. Well, and I guess the, the question is, is it nutrition or is it nutrition related factors like delivery? form of the TMR formulation exactly. of the diet. Like there's a lot of different factors that are involved. Like, is it, you know, completely hygienic silage or is there mold challenges in it? Right. Or do you have vomitoxin issues? Do you like, there's just a plethora of factors that could, could affect it. So to nail it down and say, Oh, it's one thing or another. I don't know. Like you're telling me like you've tried a lot of different things. Yeah. And still couldn't do it. So no, right. And then we'd argue pretty severe things. Like there was, like I actually stopped part of the experiment because the cows were like they were starting to lay down in the holding area, like this one they were brought up because that's the only time they had to lay down. And so and we like they started like you know how the cows get there's a shiny coat and then there's like a dull gray coat where they look really yeah. bad. Those within two or three days of that eighteen hour lying time or standing time. They looked like that, where you're like, oh my goodness, what am I doing to these cows? And still, yeah. they didn't get so well sourced. They're so resilient. I think they're a lot more resilient than we give them credit for. Yes. Which is also the flip side of that is that when we do get, like, when they do get so ulcers, like, they, they're amazing because they can deal with it. But when, like, we've broken that resiliency at some point, right? So, like, you mentioned a lot about transition, and a lot of the study was kind of focused around transition. So, what is it about that period of time that relates to foot health through the whole lactation? Like I know it's, it's a dirty word sometimes around the dairy industry. Like anytime you seem like you have issues with animals, whether it be calves, cows, usually the word transition is involved in the sentence somehow. Yes. Uh, um, like, is it just so many different physiological things are happening in that cow? Like you can compound some of those detrimental effect or detrimental factors, I guess. Yes. And then specifically with lameness, I think the chronicity also plays a role. Um, but probably what we think the driving factor in all those things is likely inflammation. Um, and which is basically a catch-all phrase. But um because when a cow calves there's some inflammatory events that need to happen. Like we need some mm -hmm. sort of inflammation to clean the uterus. Right. It's when that inflammation kind of goes haywire 
that's when the problems start to happen. And there's a whole bunch of hormones that are released and we have negative energy balance on top of that, um, which some cows can handle and some cows can't handle, right? So all those things kind of put together, but for lameness, we think it's probably an inflammatory event that's causing it. So there's inflammatory mediators kind of floating around because the cow is this calf. Um, and those inflammatory mediators act on the tissues around the bone. And typically what happens when inflammatory things are happening around the bone, the bone starts to grow more bone. And because the tissue um, that grows the horn, the corium, is very thin and right next to the bone, if, even if that tissue has some inflammation, because the cow's, for example, standing too much, that induces changes inside that bone. Basically, they get kind of a bone spur on it. And that bone spur persists. So she might get that in first lactation. And see calves again next lactation. Has a small bit of inflammation again, but grows a little bigger bone spur, right? And imagine walking with around with a rock every time you take a step. Now there's a little piece of rock sticking on it. So eventually that's going to create enough damage to create a sole hemorrhage or a sole ulcer. But in the transition, it's probably a combination of that. All those changes that are happening, plus the inflammation that results because of it, plus in some cows, um, the negative energy balance that is pretty clear with some collaborator work that we're doing with somebody else that some cows can handle and they actually do well with subclinical ketosis. Mm -hmm. Other cows kind of fall apart when they have it. And then being able to figure out which cows handle it and which cows don't. Yeah. We're hearing a lot more of that word resiliency around the dairy industry now, like what makes a cow resilient versus what makes her unresilient yeah. or not resilient. <laughs> I <Yeah>. don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what makes her weak? <laughs> yeah. What makes her weak? Yeah. Is there anything like special? Like I know we talked about the, like the biotin and stuff like that. Like if you're feeding a, a close up cow, like, is it long enough to be on a product like that or something like to get a benefit or is it just too, too soon to tell? Or do you see the benefits, you know, transition isn't just the week around calving or week before or week after it's like, it's considered, you know, 60 days or something like that, you know, 30 days before 30 days after, like what, I guess, what can we do to prevent issues management wise or nutritionally, I guess, to, to kind of help mitigate that. Yeah. So to me, it's like that 60 day window, some people call it 90 days, whatever, right. It's the 30 days before and then whatever time period after, let's say 30 days after. So I know the cow signals people say this stress-free calving, I think that's a good way to kind of look at it, right? Whatever we can do to make that stress free, that's going to help. And then nutritionally, it doesn't make sense to put all the all the magical solutions in it, right? But some herds, they might need some and some herds might need others. But I think that's where we can say, okay, in this herd, we know we're limited because we have some stressors in the transition period. So maybe we need to feed some rumen protected choline, for example, right? Because we're trying to do some things that other herds maybe because of the stage of growth that they're in, they're not overcrowded and they probably don't need that product. So I think that's where it becomes you as a nutritionist or your farm can look at it and say, okay, what are my factors that I'm compromising some of that stress fee and other nutritional factors we can use to kind of overcome some of those things or complement or give the cow the best chance to do that type of thing, right? But for me to say every dairy should use biotin, trace minerals, rumen-protected choline, this much Remensen, well, Remensen is probably clear. Everybody should probably be feeding that. Um, but I think that's not a wise use of resources that we have. And I always kind of go back to it is every time, like if, if you kind of did a meta-analysis on the herds that have 
good transition success versus the ones that don't have good transition success. I think it goes back to one to two things. One is space, dry cow space, calving space. Yeah. You know, the, these herds that, you know, maybe overbuilt some of their transition areas when they move into them, their problems go away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, there's Definitely. space to, there's space to be cows, there's space at the feed bunk. Like it might seem overkill at the time, but you know, I, I've done enough work with farms where if you take their amount of animals freshening and dairy comp and then underlay their transition diseases, nine times out of 10, they're going to follow each other like yes. perfectly across the screen or yes. across the graph or however you're going to look at it. So, yeah, no, I think that space is kind of the, the safety valve, right? So the more space you have, there's probably more errors that are permissible because the cow has the room to recover and she can go to another yeah. part of the bunk and get the feed that she needs and everything else. Right. So I know it seems a little bit weird. You said it's like 20 degrees where you are right now, but what about heat stress? <laughs> like, I think this is the best time of year to talk about heat stress, to be honest, exactly. because we have time to do something about it where, you know, in the summer it's already happening or in yeah. the spring, it's already happened. You know, now we're just playing defense against it. So a good hockey term like how do we get on the offense this time of year to prevent some of these lameness issues because i think a lot of it is around cow comfort and the biggest influence on cow comfort in the summer i believe is temperature temperature and humidity right so yeah yeah and because the cow's response to all that is to stand up like the stand earning yeah. factory and so that's ultimately what we can do so and i think like Hoof trimmers have a term and they call it block season, which is like late mm -hmm. August, September, corn silage <laughs> season, right? It's block season. Yep. Um, so and that's because of the heat stress that's happening. So the things we can do, like anything you can do to keep your cows cool is going to pay off in less lameness and more milk, right? So mm -hmm. it, like there's a whole range, like soakers, fans. And the key with some of these things is to do them longer than we think, right? So because cows experience heat, heat stress, around 18 degrees Celsius when they start changing behavior. Um, so when, if you're running your fans during the day when it's extremely hot, the cow builds up that heat. So we need to keep running the fans even past when it's cooler. So they can actually, their core body temperature gets down. Because otherwise it accumulates, right? We've all probably seen it where one day, one day of hot temperatures isn't bad. But if we have a week of a hot, like a hot spell, then really start to notice like milk production decreasing. That's just because the core body temperature just slowly keeps rising throughout the night. And then she's not as cool when the next heat wave comes. So we need to cool these cows probably longer than you think. But well, I wonder about, I wonder about that too, because you see it a lot in July and August, especially, well, maybe in June too, but you get those stretches where it doesn't drop below 20 degrees or 70 degrees, I guess, Fahrenheit uh, at night in the yeah. summer like that's when it really starts to starts to hurt and then you see it later on in the season and i'm going to use the word resiliency again the cows have lost their resiliency to kind of combat that heat stress so every every heat event after that you see a little bit more drop and a little bit more drop and a little bit more drop so it's kind of a it's a compounding yep. effect in my opinion so um, is there something different that say a producer in California would do compared to a producer in say Ontario or Minnesota, where we, we do have a lot more humidity where maybe in some of those temperate climates, they don't have, they have a lot more arid heat, I guess, drier right, so heat. The, the dry heat, yeah. right. Which, and I've worked yeah. like, I've worked in California in June and July and yes, you sweat a lot, but it dries off you really fast. So it's, 
yeah. as long as you drink enough, it's actually surprisingly that it's not as bad as I thought it would be. Whereas in Minnesota or Ontario, it just feels like you feel gross. I learned too, like I went to California and I was looking at some of these barns and there wasn't as many, as much effort, I guess, put on heat abatement as I thought there'd be. But then I went to the Southeast US in Georgia and Florida. And if you want to learn about how to prevent heat stress, that's where you, for Ontario or yes. any, anywhere that's got humidity, that's where you go because, you know, they're 35 degrees and 100% humidity, you know, 100 degrees and 100% humidity. Like it's yeah. terrible there. Like in some of those, like, yes, they do stuff in California, but the biggest thing they probably do is get them out of the sun. Yeah. Yeah. Shade. Get them in the shade. You know, get them in the shade. That exactly. And we yeah. can't, like, with our humidity, that doesn't help. No. Right, so, no, we need, we need air movement. Yeah. We need air movement and we need wet cows for a short time period so they dry. Yeah. Like, kind of evaporative cooling we need. So that's like anything you can use evaporative cooling. So even like soakers coming out of the parlor, for example, like is that strategic because every cow walks through, right? Mm -hmm. So now they're cool. Or in the holding area. Yeah, exactly. That's like a barbecue. Yeah. Like it, in your in your perfect barn design setup, like where would you kind of focus your heat abatement strategy towards? Definitely holding area because um, that's like we're putting cows basically in an oven or let's say an hour. So we need to do, they need to not, because it's like you talked about the cumulative effect, right? So if we mm -hmm. put them all in there twice or three times a day, you're going to give them that bump in the core body temperature. So anything we can do to cool there, like soakers, fans, that should there should be fans definitely in every holding area, I would argue in Ontario, and even soakers just to get them wet there. If we can be strategic with the water use there, we maybe we don't need to use as much out in the barn. Um, and then probably the other thing I would focus on is my close-up cows, mm -hmm. right? Because if we can control that, we're going to get better transition, less stress fee, and then have as much air movement in the barn as we can with plus or minus the water. I used to be big on the water, but realizing we're adding water to everywhere. In some areas, water is a resource, probably not as much in Ontario because you have those blue blankets that we talked about. Yep. Um, some of the areas <laughs> I work with, even in Minnesota, we get pretty dry at times. So we don't have to, but so water, I think we have to become probably a bit more strategic in some areas, how do you, how we strategically use the water. Well, it's funny you say that because I was a herd in Mexico and they uh, they did a lot of just their own research. And so what they were doing was looking at milk production versus cows going to the parlor three times a day with soakers in the pen versus moving the cows into the holding area, soaking them there, moving them back right. um, in between every milking. So they're milking three times a day and then in between milkings they would move them up there they actually see more milk by moving the cows more and putting them up into the holding area getting them soaked and getting them back to the pen than they did with the with the water on the feed rail right. now that's just one farm so i don't know like it's not been replicated that i know of but i think that's what they do in israel too like that's not the first time okay. i've heard of that yeah. right? okay so yeah. cooling pens so it's and it seems counterintuitive right because we're disrupting every single cow putting them all in a pen but they don't like it. So I learned this about chicken barns too. Like they accumulate heat as they lay. So with the chicken barn, they put little sprinklers on the chicken will stand up and then that, the ventilation is allowed to dissipate yep. the heat. Yep. So I wonder if there wasn't a bit of an effect like that with the cows, like the cow laying yeah. on the sand or on the, or on a compost pack. Like she's just going to yep. put a lot of heat down below her and then getting her up and moving actually helps her 
get some of that evap like helps that evaporative effect right because right? so, there's yep. more surface area for for wind to hit so yeah that makes sense but um and then kind of the last question i have for you is kind of around barn startup so i know there's been a lot of myths about concrete and how it can affect cow um hoof quality and health like what uh like i think a lot of it goes to like the concrete being pretty basic but i know in our last time i had john we talked about you know the grooving and and ridges and things like that like what's what's the most important i guess kind of consideration when a producer is moving to a new facility yeah so the i've looked into this was a while since i looked into it um so the one thing i don't remember the exact time frame right so one of them if you can and i know i've built a barn so i know it doesn't always work perfectly but if you give the concrete a chance to cure right i think it's 60 or 90 days if you give them the chance to cure that's going to help as far as the basic aspect of it but probably the bigger thing is like we talked about the grooving or how like how abrasive the concrete is on move-in day right Mm -hmm. because if it's new concrete and there's low edges because the scraper hasn't gone over it that's probably as important because that's where we see typically the thin soles and that's because the cows are walking on pretty abrasive concrete. So either grooving isn't done before, or we have a broom finish that's too abrasive, and now we have a cheese crater effect, so the cow walks on it. And it's new concrete, right? A new barn, the cow starts running, and then all of a sudden they stop, and then you can see the the skid marks on the floor, and the skid marks is horn. (laughs) (laughs) You see white marks on your new concrete, that's coming from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything like producers can do? Like I know we talked to it, like I've seen them like run concrete blocks over, run the scrapers. I know some producers have put either treatments on the floors, whether it be like linseed oil or diesel fuel or, or even just liquid manure just to kind of temper that a little bit. Like are those, are those worth doing or. So I would probably lean towards doing them if I like poured my concrete last month and now I have to move in or like a couple of years ago and now I have to move in. Then I consider some of those treatments. Um, mainly because we don't really know if they work or not, but it seems like a safe thing to do. Um, there's really no data behind either one, but I'd rather err on the side of caution from that aspect. Um, and then as far as the cinder blocks or like running the scrapers or doing something, that's to get rid of the edges, right? So if you walk in your bare feet or run your hand along the concrete, and if you're feeling edges and your hand is like, ah, this is kind of sore, mm-hmm. then I would probably start considering some of those things. So to me, I know it's easy for me to say, but if you have to have a very good relationship when the people are pouring your concrete, right? That they that's probably the most important day because that's a lifelong, lifelong impact. Are you going to be spending extra money afterwards if they screw that up? So if we can get that, like I would almost prefer a perfectly smooth surface and cut in the grooves after, because that's the safest, right? Yes, you can roll in the grooves or like pull in the grooves. But yeah. that takes a very skilled person to do that appropriately because the concrete needs to be set at the right time. And if you do it a little bit too late or a little bit too early, then you get those ridges and then you need to get the cinder blocks out or the skidster bucket, get rid of those edges. And what about grooving? Like say you get your floor poured earlier, but then they come back later and groove it. And then it's not long before cows uh, go into their new home. Is there a big influence on that? Or like, does it make it more safe. basic again? No. No, it shouldn't because the concrete is cured at that stage. 
And yeah. yes, you're like, you're digging a little deeper, but that's, they're not going to touch the deeper part. Right. And typically okay. there's those, those diamond saws need a lot of water. So they're, all that stuff is being washed away and everything else at that point. So I'm not, well, there's always, about... yeah, there's always a gray film on everything after they're done, like all that pulverized concrete, right. Yes. It doesn't harden again, but it, like you could tell it's like a clay or mud yes. almost there. Yeah. So. Right. And you probably want to get rid of that. Cause that probably isn't the greatest, but. Yep. As a kid, I remember sticking my hand and making concrete, and your hands don't feel too good afterwards, right? No, they, they get dried out pretty quick. Yes, that's so pretty basic stuff, right? So, yes, as adverse to or as the opposite side of acidic, right? So, yes. it does the same thing. Like you raise that pH, it gets pretty nasty too. Yeah, so. right. And we don't want that on the cow skin, right? Because that's it can damage the skin there. Well, I appreciate your time coming on the podcast today, Gerard. Is there anything else that you kind of wanted to touch on, or any kind of smoking guns for for the producers <laughs> no i think you hit on you hit on a couple of myths that we talked about which is good so yeah i might have to name this podcast the Mythbuster, but <laughs> <laughs> we need some of that right that's keith was wrong a lot <laughs> <laughs> you're not the only one right and no and i, I think and, i've said that are myths too and i don't know it yet so yeah well the, the thing is like the more we learn the more we don't know we realize we don't know so yes. it's always good to kind of put some science and some experience behind the numbers and see you know what are some of these practical applications that producers can use right so yes anyways gerard i uh, truly appreciate it i know i imagine you got to get to class here soon so no i appreciate the invite it was fun thank you thank you Thanks for listening. This episode of the Dairy Farmer's Digest is brought to you by the dairy team at Wallenstein Feed and Supply Limited. If you enjoy the show, subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast player. And please leave us a review. If you would like further information about today's topic, check out the show notes for further details and our contact information. I would also like to extend a special thanks to Christine Schoonerwood, our producer, and our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera.